Okay, guys, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Last week, Paul continued on. He's been talking really for four chapters about false teachers and comparing them to himself as an apostle. He started talking last week about how they have suffered as apostles and the things they have suffered. At verse 14, he starts to do something. He begins now to reel the audience back in who's reading his epistle there in Corinth and to bring them back to him. Now, the whole time he has been saying, we are all equal, we're all brethren, we're all sisters, we are equal in the body of Christ. Your relationship is to Christ directly. But suddenly now, he starts reeling everybody back in toward himself as an apostle. So from chapter 1 all the way to this point, he's been building a case for... Believers of Corinth having a direct relationship with Christ, but now he starts to insert his authority. Now, along the way, he has said things in this argument that have, have been disparaging of himself, kind of, and we've talked about that. And I would suggest he did this as a means to first level the playing field in terms of believers. We are all on the same playing field but now he starts to talk about the fact that he and the other apostles were called by Christ specifically to do very specific things. And he's going to refer to himself in kind of a uh, heightened way in a second that is, is intriguing. But you see, in terms of earthly authority, uh, there's no getting around the fact in the New Testament that the apostles had authority and that Jesus gave it to him and having made a case for himself as a suffering apostle he now begins to assert his authority there among the people and to correct false teachers and the things that they say so after laying all this out as we are definitely true apostles because we've suffered we've suffered we've suffered unlike you false teachers he says some really powerful words, words that we can take as brash, almost. Ready? He says at verse 14, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you, through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Now that is heavy. He's been saying, follow no one but Christ. And, and now suddenly he says, I've begotten you, follow me. For this cause I send unto you, Timotheus, verse 17, and he goes on and talks. And we're not going to even cover those passages today because there's so much to talk about these first two passages. And then we'll talk about the be ye followers of me next week. Back to verse 14, Paul speaking of what he wrote about his sacrifices as an apostle. We've suffered more. We've done this, this, and this. He says, I write not these things to shame you, to tell you all that we've suffered, but as my beloved sons... I warn you. So in other words, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty by comparison that you haven't suffered the way I've suffered. That's not why I'm doing this. He seems to understand that shame would come about when any time someone says, you know, as 
uh, you know, you're a mother and you're sitting there with your family and another mother sits there with her family. And as a mother, things have been pretty good for you. But the other mother says, you know, I had to work uh, every day from six in the morning till seven at night, uh, hard labor. And uh, I did that. And then I would pick my kids up from school in a covered wagon. And I had to, so the other mother can't help but kind of feel ashamed just by comparison. We do that as we talk with people. Paul doesn't want them to feel ashamed by comparison. He didn't do it to guilt them. He knows he has a special call on his life, and he's not trying to say, you need to do this too. His purposes seem to be of a higher, higher aim. What was the higher aim? He says uh, his aim was to address his beloved sons to warn them. Now, and right here, Paul establishes himself as something more than just a brother on equal footing uh, with the believers there. He does this by referring to them as my beloved sons, sons. When a man calls someone his son, that is the man saying, I am, have a position of authority over you, in a sense. I, I help bring you into this world. You are beneath me, so to speak. You are my sons, Paul says. And he says, you are my dear children, all right? So that automatically places Paul in a position of having begat something in them as their father. Uh, it's interesting, but a loving father wouldn't humiliate their children. And, uh, you know, they would, a loving father, I mean, we fail, but a loving father would try to uh, produce empathy and interest and kindness and gentleness and understanding and, uh, and then have a better chance of instructing once those things are implemented. And so in other words, if people know, if people really know you love them, if children really know that their mother and father love them primarily, they are more apt to listen to mom and dad than if they don't know that. And that's the way it would work with anybody. If, if you first know someone loves you, you can get away with a lot if they know you really do love them. And, uh, and, and so Paul seems to be saying this, it, 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 that he is a father to them, but the things he said is not to shame them or bring them into guilt. He wants to them to know he loves them. And in that love, he's warning them about what is being done here. I'm not saying to cause you anything to feel badly. You know I love you as a father loves his children, but I am speaking to you to warn you because something's not right here in Corinth. Something that is very dangerous to your well-being. And as your spiritual father, I'm warning you. In verse 15, he provides us with a super unique concept. He says, For though you have 10,000, that's Hebrew hyperbole, meaning endless, instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For, listen to this line, he says, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. In Christ Jesus, Paul says, I have, he talks about himself, begotten you in, through the gospel. Before we discuss this passage, listen to a, a few other uh, translations. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it's the YLT, Young's, it says, For if a myriad of child conductors 
you may have in Christ, yet not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, through the good news, I did beget you. And uh, the BBE says, for even if you had 10,000 teachers in Christ, you have not more than one father. For in Christ Jesus, I have given you birth through the good news. In Christ Jesus, Paul says, I have given you birth, new life, through the good news. And then the RSV, the Revised says, for though you have countless guides in Jesus, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the word translated as guides in Christ or tutors or governors or teachers, child conductors, is pahidagogos, pahidagogos, and it means a leader of children, a servant whose job is to take children and make sure that they get instructions, okay? So what Paul is saying here, and boy, it is really true. He says, we have tens of thousands of people who are pahidagogos to us, tens of thousands of people taking us to get us instruction, all kinds of people trying to instruct us on what uh, Jesus wants us to know and how we should live as Christians. Uh, he says, I am the father of your faith, uh, not just an assigned leader to take you to Sunday school, uh, but I am the father that brought you about spiritual birth through the sharing of the gospel in your life. And even though the King James reads that he says, they have not many fathers, that's what the King James says, though you have not many fathers, really it means you only have one spiritual father in your life. Uh, the one who was the instrument in bringing you to faith in the first place. And that's why Paul says that he's the one who has begotten them. That is a very bold statement for someone to say, I begat you through the gospel. How did he begat them? I just answered, said it. Through preaching the gospel, they were begat. Now, I suppose the father of my conversion is Charles Stanley. That's a pastor who has a ministry back uh, in Atlanta, and he was on the radio one day, and I happened to turn the radio on, and he delivered a message. Now, I have had many instructors in Christ, and many people who were my friends and mentors along the way in Christ, but I only had one real person who helped begat me uh, in the faith by the Spirit by sharing the good news, and that's Charles Stanley. He shared the good news with me through a question. He said, if you could get yourself right with God, why haven't you done it? That was the direct question. I still remember it today, even though it was 21 years ago. Why haven't you done it? And the question said, that is the greatest question I've ever heard because I've tried to do it. I've tried to get myself right with God through bad means and good means, religious means and non-religious means, education, insight, literature, sin. I've tried every way, drunkenness, drugs, whatever it is. I've tried every way possible to have union with God, and I haven't been able to do it. And then Charles Stanley said, do you know why you haven't done it? And then he answered his own question, because you can't. That's what he said. And that was what caused me to say, 
whoa. <clears throat> For some reason, that message that day when he says, because you can't, I stopped and said, okay, I got to hear, what, what's the news then? If I can't, what's the good news? And then he shared the good news. That's why Jesus came. He came to do what you can't do. And he did it for you. And you look to him in faith. And in that faith, you say, I trust that he did it. And that is how you get right with God. Boom. I mean, it was clear as day. Still in my mind as I recite it now, I can remember how clear that message was. I completely understand now. And, you know, still part of a, another church and still, you know, active in that church for another four years and, and all the other things and still had a lot of problems to work through like I still do today. But bottom line, I understood that good news delivered by Charles Stanley over the radio, side of the road, and I was begat by him sharing the good news through the Holy Spirit. This, these words are so bold, and our modern, it makes me laugh. It actually frustrates the heck out of me. In our modern Christianese, we experience today something I call constant, the, three, the CCC, constant Christian correction. Constant Christian correction. Let me explain to you what I mean by this. Let's say you hear somebody has had been saved or something, and you say to them, Wow, that's great. And constant Christian correctors say, no, Jesus is great. And you're like, yes, Jesus is great. Of course he's great. But it's really wonderful that you came to know Christ and the constant Christian correction says, no, Jesus is wonderful. And uh, I didn't come to know Christ. Christ revealed himself to me. So you start to feel embarrassed that you can't say anything without a constant Christian correction. So you wind up saying, cherry slurpee's good. And they say, no, only the bread of life is good. So there, it's this constant taking, uh, one-upping everybody on just regular expressions that we have and using God and Jesus to do it. Well, here, I'll tell you right now, what Paul is saying is ripe in our day and age for constant Christian correction. I mean, if anybody today said, I'm your spiritual father, I begat you through sharing the gospel. Do you realize what our culture would do with that? They would not allow that to happen. And maybe for good reason. Because in our day and age, the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing all of it. And, and so we know that even without hearing the word shared, uh, sometimes the Holy Spirit does begat. So maybe there's a difference between the apostolic period and that time. I suppose it's, there's nobody on the earth who has the same apostolic powers as Paul did. So maybe the constant Christian correction would be appropriate in our age. If someone says, I begat him and I begat her, and through my preaching of the gospel, I am their spiritual father, maybe that is improper. Nevertheless, listen to what Paul says again, because I think the principles somehow remain true in how people generally come to faith. 15, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So Christ Jesus has been brought into your life. I have brought him into your life through the gospel. 
What Paul means here is through the preaching of the gospel, I served as the one who fathered the faith in Christ that you possess because I introduced you to it. Not through the wisdom of men, not through my scholarly efforts, not through my personal powers to persuade or to do miracles even. He says, in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel, through the good news. In this specific sense, we all became, we all become spiritual fathers and mothers when we share the good news with others and they come to faith as a result of our sharing the word with them. Uh, that's what Paul did when he went to Corinth. He didn't write them an epistle first. And he didn't get, get there and say, let me write you letters that you can go and read, read it, and you'll become converted. He went and spoke. And when he spoke, they, hearing the good news, became converted by the Holy Spirit. That's the caveat here. Paul did not convert them. The Holy Spirit did. But Paul delivered the words that they could hear and say, I receive those. I believe those. And then they are begotten by the Holy Spirit. All by using words. Everything is using words. And those who hear and heard the gospel, the words of the gospel, believe them. Uh, and in this way, all of us become partners with God, if you will. Partners with God. It's God's word. It's God's son. It's God's good news. We share that through this means, our words that are on our heart, and those words serve to bring life, spiritual life in other people. That's the system God has set up. And that's why Jesus said to his apostles, go and preach, not go and write. So the word that we read and study today, that's for believers to grow thereby. And that, that there is power in those words, true. But the gospel shared is done by mouth to ear, mouth to ear to heart of others. And so we're not under bondage to share those words. It's by the spirit that we would share them with somebody because we love them and care for them and we want them to understand something that would be beneficial to their lives. They love us. They trust us. You share it. It happens. That's part of the problem with just going out on a street corner and shouting from the rooftop, you're going to go to hell if you don't receive Jesus. Those people walking haven't learned that you love them. They don't know anything about you. All they hear is you saying something like tinkling brass. And so they can, most of them, almost all of them continue to walk. But when someone who they know loves them shares the good news with them through words, those words which God has given them somehow have power to transform lives. It's a radical, radical concept that in this way we partner, just by being vehicles with God, to bring forth more children to him through Christ, sharing of the gospel. Uh, I've been going through a lot of thoughts about words and, and in the relationship that words have to life and that words have to God and that words have to Christ. 
And uh, so let me talk through it with you. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11, God says something really, really beautiful. Um, He gives us an example here, all the way back in Isaiah. And he tells us that he's the one who sends the snow. We're having a lot of snow out here. He's the one who sends that snow and the rain upon the earth. And he says, when it comes to the earth, it doesn't return, like hit the ground and come right back to him. He says that what happens is it waters the plants and it waters the buds. And Isaiah says, seeds to the sowers and bread to those needing food is what happens because of it. That's the illustration. This is what he says. I'll give you the quote. And as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Okay, there's the illustration. And then he goes on and says, so shall my word be. So he likens his word to the snow and rain that he gives to the earth. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. So just sharing his word doesn't automatically mean it's going to land on the heart ground that is right and produce fruit. But he does say his word shared does not return void. It doesn't land and then not come back bringing forth something. That's what he says. His word. And so we say, wow, his words are so powerful that when spoken, they have the capacity to create life where there is none. That's what we seem to be talking about. How do the words that come forth from God reach and prosper things? Well, he gives us the illustration, just like rain comes. You see a big field, rain comes, the seeds lying under the earth. They're not growing. Why? They're dormant. They're dead. They're actually dead. They haven't germinated. They're dead seeds. And the water, living word, the water comes down upon them and it sparks And his word is like that water. It sparks and gives life. And things begin to grow by the words we use. So that's the goal goal, that we share the word. We share his good news with others, led by the spirit, not by compulsion. And people hear it, receive it, and they are begotten to new life. They are saved. Is how we describe it. That's why Paul said in Romans 10, 13, 14. Ready? You know this. It's very, very <coughs> popular. For who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how shall they call on him in whom they haven't believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they haven't heard? So now, we're, now we've gone to the ear. And how shall they hear without a preacher. And how shall they preach unless a preacher is sent? And I would say in our day, a preacher is sent by the Holy Spirit to share that word. Three verses later, Paul says there in Romans, so then, ready, 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Which is why messages that reach out to people with the good news, like Charles Stanley on the radio, uh, do so much good. They're simple messages. They aren't deep teachings like we have here. They aren't teaching necessarily the word. They are sharing the good news with people, casting out that seed and, and hoping that it lands on the right heart of the right people. God waters it and it begins to grow. That's just the sharing of the word. And we call them missional outreaches and we call them just preaching the gospel. And it's a wonderful uh, key element to the growth of the kingdom of God is the sharing of the word, right? When you come to a church and you just keep repeating that, that's not what the church, that's not what the gatherings are for. The gatherings are people who have heard the word, it's growing, and now they need to learn how to let God cut that back and prune and, and water and nurture and grow and produce more fruit in their lives. That's a whole separate thing. When you see people who focus only on the good news, that's the call on their life. To plant those seeds in people's hearts, God waters with the Holy Spirit and those people become converts. They cannot say to someone who teaches the deeper things, you're no good, you're not needed. That's not true. That is not a good biblical response to what scripture talks about. And someone who teaches the deeper things to people who have the word growing in them cannot say to someone who's a preacher, you're no good, you're not necessary. Everybody's laboring in the farm to get the growth to come. But it begins with the sharing of the word by the hearing. So you can, we can never stand against someone who just preaches Christ. Vital to the faith. Our sharing God's words is akin to us going out on a big flat dirt field don't, and, and seeds may have been planted by the birds or whatever and you take a fire hose and every, uh, every other day for several weeks you just keep watering that thing. That big, that's what it's like. It's, it's giving life to those who God is ready to hear it. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, being born by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This word is radical, powerful, eternal, life-changing, life-altering, it is not like the words of man. It's not like the words of our great poets. It is the words of God. They are different and they have a capacity to create life from nothing, which is why we teach creatio ex nihilo, which is God created everything out of nothing because he can speak and things come into being by his very word. When uh, religions teach that he could only create things out of things that were already made, we limit the power of his word, you see? But his word has that capacity, and that's evidenced through models that we have. Like Sarah was told, you're going to have a child, and she laughed. Why? Because her womb was absolutely dead, dry ground. There was nothing that was going to grow there. 
and out of nothing by him saying so, she conceived. And that's how the miracles occur, is that by his word, new life comes to being, that he says to Lazarus, who is dead in the grave, four days, dead, 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 like Sarah's womb, like everything in the universe, he speaks, his word gives life, and people are made new creations. So Paul says, when I went to Corinth, I spoke the word, and I begat you by that good news that was shared. We also know that the word shared, which is what we're doing today, nourishes and serves and prunes and cuts. That's why we have passages. Let me share these with you quickly. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You know, we don't just live by the stuff that's on our table. We live by the every word of God. But where do we get every word of God? In the book that we read. Second uh, Corinthians 6, 7, Paul calls the the word of God, the word of truth, right? And, uh, and we know from Jesus that it's the truth that sets us free. Uh, if you're trapped in your thinking, it's the truth that sets us free. And Paul says the truth is his word. So you read the word and you will be set free from the shackles of your mind and your heart and the traditions of men. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it in truth the word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. It's the word that works. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.15, two believers, study to show thyself approved unto God. That's why we spend so much time on studies that take time and that aren't so inviting and engaging and aren't so emotional and uplifting because you study to show yourself approved of God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You read it and you learn to rightly divide it, to understand it. Of course, Hebrews 4.12, you know this one. For the word of God is sharp, excuse me, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to dividing soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We read it and it discerns what we are about. I've spent so many years in the Word and you know what I know about myself? I am a bad jackass. That's what I know about myself. I have not come to know myself as better. I know myself as worse when I read that thing because it cuts and it is a discerner. His Word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Take someone, and I have personal living examples of this over more than decades I've worked with, who struggle with things in their flesh. Almost all of them refuse to bring the word into their life. You know why? Because it's too painful. They can't stand to be exposed to the light on a daily basis 
to be seen for the reprobates and whoever they are. They, it, they, their ego won't allow it. So they stay away from really hearing and learning the word because it's painful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, than a doctor's scalpel. People who read it and know what they are and can just say, look, I have to rely on you, they're able to read it and let the word work in them. But to, you, we avoid it because it is so painful. I mean, who wants to go to the dentist every day for a root canal? That's what reading the word does to us spiritually. We enter in and it's a sharp scalpel that's cutting away the parts that God does not want in us. Or at least revealing them. Telling us, I've saved you from this. I've saved you in this. But still, you know. So it's obviously that God's word. You know what he says in Psalm uh, 138.2? He says, I have magnified my word above my name. That's what he says. Above my own name, which the Jews don't even speak or write, which we don't even really know what it is, the Yahweh. He says, I've magnified my word above my name. So why and how is the word of God so powerful? And what can we learn about it and him relative to ourselves What does scripture point out about the relationship of God and his word to human beings? So I want you to remember the passage I cite a lot here, and that's John 17, 3. Jesus says there plainly, if you believe it, you're really well off in the race of getting to God. And this is life eternal. He says it. This is what it is. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you, the only true God, sent. That's life eternal. That's life eternal, to know him. If you know them and he knows you, that's life eternal. So since meeting with James White, uh, that we had a thing on a show that we do, and, and I have sought with more fervency by God and the Spirit to know God and Christ, who God sent through the scripture, through the spirit, because that's life eternal to know them. And you don't take it lightly. So I want to talk on the board now, uh, Dave, I'm going to move over to this thing or Seth. We're going to work from the board for the rest of our short time together. (coughs) (coughs) Let me just share with you with what I've understood so far from, and it's limited. But in the beginning, all the way through the Old Testament, we read of one God. And it's interesting, Jesus tells us that God is spirit, and we have uh, the spirit synonymously working with the word breathed. Spirit breathed. We also know from Scripture that this one God anthropomorphically speaks. What does he speak? Words. So we have those two things going into our understanding of the one God. I mean, we have that in Scripture. God is spirit. God breathes spirit. God speaks words. Both of those actions seem to create life. 
We have that in Scripture. So if we go to the creation, in Genesis 1-3, we read of the first thing God did in creation, and God, the one God, said, let there be light, and there was light. He said it, he spoke, and it happened. Spoke words, right? Words. God said. Now, I don't think he had lips like a man, but he said somehow the way God would speak words, let there be light, and there was light. Same when it comes to the Spirit. We read in the second chapter of Genesis, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth, ready, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living soul. We notice that in conjunction with his spirit, there was life, the life of man. We know in conjunction with his speaking words, there is creation and life is given. Light is born, planets are created, etc. Animals. This happens in, in the same way in that partnership I'm talking about. We speak his words. The spirit, the words are spirit breathed and we begat... By, you, by being in partnership with him, his life into other people. And they go from being spiritually dead or dormant, completely of a non-existent nature, to living in God. All right? Now, let's move forward. Hebrews 11.3. You'll know this passage. It says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things that were seen, that were made, do appear. So we know that, it, that the worlds were framed by his words, speaking. Next, let's talk about the origins of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus says many times that he came from the one God? It says, he said in John 8, 42, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. And neither came I myself, but he sent me. God sent me. I came forth from God. That's how Jesus describes himself. In John 16, 27, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came out from God. When I hear that, I think he came out one way or another in that way, not anthropomorphically, but he came out from God as spirit and as words. In John 16, 30, he says, Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man... No, someone says this to Jesus. He says, Now we know that you know all things, and needest not that any man ask you. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. That's how scripture describes Jesus. We want to know God and we want to know his son. And scripture describes Jesus this way. What that means, I'm not sure, but this is what scripture says. Okay? Now when it comes to the spirit, listen to how Revelation 11.11 says, And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God. From God. There's other passages I don't have it written here that talk about the Spirit coming from and out of God. Okay? So, 
John 16.30 says, Thou camest forth from God. Scripture says the spirit of life comes from God. And I just want to suggest to you that when we start talking this way, we can start to get a picture and we can start to know the true God and his son whom he has sent. So let me do this. I want to give you some passages and I'm going to read the passages to you of what they say. And I'm going to, uh, the first one we're going to talk about is God. What scripture says about God relative to truth, relative to liberty, relative to light, fire, spirit, love, and life. Did you know that when we come to passages in scripture that say things like God is, or that describe God, these are the key f- eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. These are the key seven words that describe him. All right, I'm missing one up there too. All right, well, let's just cover these. Deuteronomy 32.4, it says, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, without iniquity, just and right is he. So God is described as a God of truth. We have to accept scripture, that's how scripture describes him. So if people say, is God true? Yes, he is. How do we know? Scripture says it. Spirit testifies to it. Next one. He is liberty. Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach his good tithings, tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, heart, brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives. He proclaims it with his mouth. He is word. He is light. He is all these things you're going to keep seeing. And so he is coming out and he proclaims liberty. That's part of his nature. Light, 1 John 1, 5. And this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. It's one of the only, there's only like three or four is's of God is. And that's one of them. God is light. He is light. Okay? Fire. Hebrews 29 and also Deuteronomy says, For our God is a consuming fire. To know him is to know life eternal. Know these things about him. You want to understand God? Know these things about him, right? Fire. Spirit. John 4.24. Jesus says, God is spirit. So you wonder why Christians have such a thing with Mormons who say he's, he's flesh. Jesus emphatically says God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember truth back here. God is truth. You've got to worship him in spirit and in truth. Love, you know this one, 1 John 4, 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. He is love. And then finally, Mark 27, he that is not the God, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He's God of living things. He gives life. He's not the God of dead things. So I think we can, and there's other scriptures, sufficiently say that God is truth, God is liberty, God is light, God is fire, God is spirit, God is love, and God is life. And you have a beginning Network of words that scripture used to describe the God, the one God of the Old Testament that we don't understand. This is how scripture describes him. 
Now, let's get to something kind of radical. Do you realize that these same things are also described of words, of the Word of God, not words, the Word of God? In John 17, uh, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Ready? Thy word is truth. Okay? John 8, 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So we have a connection now. His words are truth, and his, and his truth sets people free. And God is described as liberty. So this is all meshing in. And everything that is done and said and described is him and his words. Light, Psalms 119.105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word, a light. That's why we study it. Jeremiah, a fire. Hebrews says God is a consuming fire. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. His word is a fire, Jeremiah says. His word is spirit. Ephesians 6:17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. His word is spirit. John uh, 6:33. His word is spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So synonymously, we have Spirit and Word working together. We have Word and Truth, Word and Liberty, God and Light, all working together. Uh, Love. For this is the love of God. This is a little bit of a stretch, but think about it. That we keep His commandments. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. How do we know His commandments? By His words. So this is his, that's how we, sh- that, this is the love of God, that we keep his words. So we have a connection to the word being love and uh, him being love. And then finally, life. First John 1, 1. Listen to how John described word, just word here, even though we know who it is at the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes. We know he's talking about Jesus here. Which we have looked upon in our hands and have handled, and then he, and you know what he says there? He says, the word of life. The word of life. The word of life. So we know that here in 1 John 1, 1, life is associated with the word. The word of life here, and we know he's talking about Jesus. Which leads us to our final one. Jesus. We know God has proven these. Let's go through and read what Jesus said. When it comes to the truth, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John, uh, when it comes to liberty, he said, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So we, what we're starting to see is God is these things. His word is these things, are these things. And then Jesus, the word made flesh, brings these things. And through him, God is bringing every, through him only, by the words, God is bringing everybody into his, uh, into relationship with him. Everybody who's willing to receive him. Uh, Light. Jesus and light, you know it. I am the light of the world. You know? God is light. That's a direct quote from this one. 1 John 1, 5. God is light. 
Jesus comes, he says, I am the light of the world. There is no question at all, in my thinking, at all, that Jesus, uh, of Jesus being God. No question there. That's not the debate. To know them both is life eternal. Jesus, God, that is not even, anyone comes down that road, it's just proven absolutely incorrect through Scripture. The question is, what did that look like as the Word of God? All right, and, and we'll continue to talk about that one as we go on. But he says, I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We'll get to life again down there. Matt, in terms of fire, you remember that, this isn't a, a real great direct one, but John the Baptist, when he came, he says, look, I can, I can, I, I'm going to baptize you with water. But he that comes after me that I can't even tie his shoe, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay? So we have Jesus coming and baptizing people with the fire that is the same fire that his word is and the same fire that is from God. Jesus, Spirit. This is, a, this is one you have to think about. But the scripture says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Was Jesus born of the Spirit? He was. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's the only one on earth who was ever born of the Spirit from birth. So, and he was also born of flesh, so he was both God and man. We know that. That's indisputable, right? But we know that he is Spirit, the part of him that is God. Because God is Spirit. His Word is Spirit. Christ is Spirit. That is God. The flesh was not. Love, he that, uh, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there's none occasion of stumbling in him. So when we love, we're abiding in light. He is the light that came into the world. God is light, all connected. And finally, life, Jesus said in John six thirty three, for the bread of God, which comes down from heaven and giveth life, to the whole world. So bringing it all back to what Paul said, Jesus came and did it. Paul is his apostle. Paul speaks the words of Jesus and the good news. Those words give life to those who are willing to hear, and they are begat in and through that process, which Paul is talking about. So if you uh, want to talk, uh, just let, go, go with me really quickly backward, we can say from this, from Scripture, I'm going to go to this camera now. Hopefully I'm lined up. Uh, from Scripture, the one true God is defined as fire, liberty, light, love, life, spirit, uh, truth, and words. Um, described in those terms. God's words can also be reasonably described as spirit, fire, love, uh, light, truth, uh, life and freedom. His spirit is described as words. Light, fire, love, truth, life and freedom. His love can be described as connected to words. And his love is light and spirit and life and truth and freedom. His truth is love and light and, and, and spirit and fire and life and words and freedom. And his light is love and truth and spirit and fire and life and words and freedom. His life is love and spirit and truth and fire and words and freedom. And his freedom is life and love and spirit and truth and fire and words 
Uh, so they all, while doing different things, help us understand who God is and who Christ Jesus is. How God loved the world so much, he sent his only begotten son, and we understand him as dead, barren fields through the words that God created all things with and breathed out from the very beginning. I think we'll stop there and uh, go to Q&A if there are any, and then move on next week. Oh, wait. What time, uh, what time are we at? Okay. A little early. What's that? Oh, okay. Um, so I just want to, let me just summarize a few thoughts. And I have this down here. I didn't know if I'd do it or not. To me, so far, the incarnation of God's word in the man Jesus did many things. I say that purposely. The incarnation of God's word into the man Jesus. It gives us God's word in the man Jesus. I see God as passing himself into human existence. Uh, he was God with us. I think we can take scripture. He was God with us. And we can say that. God understood suffering of man in and through his only human son. Uh, God took his word and gave it human form. Before God took his word and wrote it on stony tablets. Now he took his word and he wrote it in, in human form. Words describe. God was able to perfectly relate with and to, all, uh, and to a human without fail. God had continuous relationship with his human son. The word made flesh. A human being was able to relate to God perfectly and in love. A human being, the first man, first at the second Adam, the first real man was able to, on our behalf, relate perfectly with God throughout his whole mortal life. There was no deviation in Christ Jesus' life. He related perfectly with the living God. Just think about what that accomplished in terms of the human race versus what Adam and Eve did. God was able to make a propitiation for the sins of the world through his son. That in flesh, his son, in blood, which is the life of a person, was able to shed his blood. And God made propitiation for the human race through the relationship he had with his perfect son. A God was able to have spiritual victory over Satan's reign, and he was able to have physical victory over Adam's reign. He had victory through Christ his son in both the physical and the spiritual. God obtained a worthy heir for all his material and spiritual creation. That's how I would see it. Christ became a joint heir with the Father after he overcame his flesh. Christ was, uh, God was able to reign rightfully now over the hearts of men. He can rightfully reign, not imposing, but rightfully reign inside the hearts of men because of his son. Humankind, we were given, listen, a Lord and a King and a Savior. Do you know that the nation of Israel called David Lord, King, and Savior? And that David was the, was the king for all of Israel. He failed that test. Now they have a king who sits on that throne, who reigns forever and ever in that uh, steed. And he's a second David, so to speak. And that we have a Lord, reigning savior, reigning king. He's a type of David. David, they didn't call God. He was a man who had God in him or working on him. Jesus did it perfectly. 
Humankind was given a Lord instead of instructions now because of our Lord and King and Savior, we have example. We have one who lived it, who we relate to now through God, by him. And he brings all that God is, all of that stuff. He brings all of it to us through the words that we read about him. I just wanted to add that last stuff on for you before we pray. No questions? Oh, go ahead. This is Danny. Um, I noticed one more column that you left off up there, possibly, is feelings. Did you say feelings? <laughs> yeah. The reason I bring that up is I've been watching on the Internet uh, um, something called The District. And it, what it is, it's a... Um, they took missionaries, a group of missionaries that they identified in the MTC, and they wanted to follow their footsteps as they left the MTC through their preparation into the mission field. And then as they began to share Mormonism with people, you know, and every one of these young men and women were so sincere. And I related to it. You could relate to it because we've both been on LDS missions. And uh, tears were coming down my eyes because, or my cheeks because... I realize that how sincere and desirous they are of doing the right thing, and yet the whole time as I watch these, these are this is reality uh, videos, which are really great to watch. There's only a, a half dozen episodes, but it shows the investigators struggling with under trying to understand what they're being taught the gospel, and being shown a different book, and the the whole focuses on preaching my gospel, which I, you could tell that it's not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ about who he is, but about who a man by the name of Smith, uh, who they claim to be a prophet, and it's his gospel. And it really it just wrenched my heart, because they just kept saying, you need to feel the Spirit. You, that's how you'll know if these things are true. You'll come to know that the right thing to do is to... You know, read the Book of Mormon, pray about it, you get a warm feeling, and you'll follow the prophet. Yeah. And it hurt my feelings to know that, my feelings, it hurt my heart to know that um, it's all an attempt to lead people away from the real truth. Yeah. And what you just demonstrated today was amazing. Uh, you really broke it down for us, and I appreciate awesome. uh, all those important elements that make up who God is and what he means to us in our life. And that we can't just rely on our feelings because they can be very deceptive. As I saw people, both missionaries and investigators, you know, uh, not recognizing what the truth is because they're being led in a different direction. That's why I think it's so important for us to speak up, speak out, share the truth, wake people up a little bit. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Derek. I've got a question if you could uh, maybe explain further the, um, the differenti differentiation in the Bible of the word Lord, capital L, small O-R-D, or Lord with all four letters capitalized. The Lord with all, uh, with capital L, o, lowercase O-R-D, is Adonai, and it, anybody can be a Lord. Uh, you are the Lord over your household. Well, at least that's what Dania makes you think. And uh, you can be the Lord over your, uh, your businesses. 
uh, you can anybody. That's why they can call people Lord in Scripture. It doesn't. It's just a donai, and it just means someone who's over and reigning. But L O R D all caps is another way to say uh, Yahweh. It's another way to say God's proper noun name. So when you see the two lords in the same scripture, it's really important to, to translate what they're actually saying so you can know who is what in that way. And, uh, but L-O-R-D, all cap, is the same thing as saying uh, God's proper noun name. Yeah. Does that help? Awesome. All right. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we uh, have a list here in front of us. We thank you for our time. We pray that we will uh, take the comments that, and include them in our uh, hearts and minds and take the stuff written out and spoken, whatever's of you, to use um, for our understanding of who you are and, and that we can know uh, the difference between the uh, a capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and the all l-o-r-d, uppercase. We want to know the difference. We don't want to follow lords of men. We want to follow the Lord. And uh, so equip us, Lord. That's why we get together. We pray for all of our children and our grandchildren. I pray for direction and purpose in their lives. Such a tough age. So many difficulties pulling at our uh, families. And uh, we just pray that you will help uh, break through that light and that love with that knowledge and truth and all those things that you have for us. And um, we pray for uh, John Taylor, who's struggling with his uh, disease after breaking his neck and uh, quadriplegic and his family and his bed sores and his wife and struggling with insurances and making ends meet down there in San Diego. We pray for Andy Pollan and his wife Lori and their uh, children. And we pray for there to be understanding and healing. Uh, give love to Andy uh, on our behalf. and. Uh, and help his family deal with him taking his own life and help the uh, Christians who are making uh, judgment and comments online that they'll back up and they will look in the mirror and, not, and realize they don't know anything when they speak and that they, we will have compassion and love uh, for those who uh, are led to such measures uh, and not judgment. And bless Lori as she faces these kinds of things um, and, and help, help her. We pray for uh, Sandy Wiley and healing on her. We pray for Diane and uh, her legs. Pray for Mary and her hip and that we can get that diagnosed and that she can have full movement again. We pray for Liz, the operation she had on her hip, her knee, and uh, everybody else whose names aren't here but should be. We know who they are. They're on our hearts and they're in our families and they're in our neighborhoods. And we just pray that we'll be equipped now with the different ministries you give us. We all have a ministry. We all have something that we reach out to the world with. And uh, it may be very, very small in the world's eyes, or it may be huge in the world's eyes, but we know you know its value. And we just pray that we will do what you've called us to do based on your spirit. Help uh, the weather and the people traveling in it. And we just worship and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.